Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. Merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store, and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. For episode 13, Truly the Goats had on the show Michael Foley, a real triple threat in the sports history world as a journalist, author, and podcaster. Michael is a journalist and sports editor for the Sunday Times and a member of the Gaelic Athletic Association's History and Commemorations Committee, most recently acting as a driving force behind the GAA's Bloody Sunday commemorations. As an author, Michael has written Kings of September, winner of the 2007 Irish Sportsbook of the Year Prize, and The Bloodied Field on the events of Bloody Sunday 1920. He's also ghostwritten the autobiography of Gaelic football manager Mickey Hart. In short, Michael was the perfect guest to speak with Truly the Goats about Irish sport. The following is the entire unexpurgated conversation I had with Michael on Ireland sports, past, present, and future. Michael Foley, thanks for joining us today on Truly the Goats. Yeah, great to be here, Oz. Thanks very much. Let's just get right into it question I also asked Emmett Ryan on the last podcast. In your estimation, what sort of role does sport play in Irish culture in general? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think over the years, because we're such a relatively young country, I mean, you know, the Republic of Ireland won't be 100 years old for another for, for another 12 months. Uh, and obviously there's a 32 county version as well. So, I mean, in that sense, I suppose it's helped to form identity. It's much like any other country, I guess. It's it's helped to form identities. Um, in the case of something like Gaelic games, for example, the indigenous sports of hurling and Gaelic football, um, those in particular, um, when they were when the GAA was formed in 1884 and coming forward, really helped to form communities and pull pull communities together. So, like you had a local team that you could root for, which would not have been the case previous to that. And if we think of the kind of the the time that the GA would have been would have been formed were, were not even 40 years after the Great Famine. So Ireland, in terms of its own self-esteem, its self-worth of the people who were living in Ireland at that time would have been quite low. So to have something like that, something local, something to root for and something to make them feel good, was really, really, really important. I mean, we see it coming up through the years then if we if we move on, like even to the to the 80s, when the Irish soccer team began qualifying for major tournaments. They made the European Championships in 1988. They made their very first World Cup in 1990 in Italy, that had a huge uh, positive effect as well on the self-esteem of a country that was going through a really crippling recession at the time, immigration, absolutely leaking people to all four corners of the globe. 
it was a moment again of bringing people back together and giving people a sense of work about the place they were from. Um, so in that regard, it's, it's, it's played a huge role. And also, I suppose, just going back to the GA again, again, around the time of the founding of the state, first 10, 15 years going into the 20s, into the 30s, again, depressed time, and very much um, the GAA and other sporting organisations would really have provided, I suppose, the community network, the social fabric and the infrastructure. I mean, for example, again, I go back to the GAA. I think we've gone back to that a lot already. But we could we could say the same for soccer and rugby. These are not municipal local government grounds. These are grounds that were built, you know, by the organisations or by local clubs themselves through dint of, yes, public money, but also money donated by their members and local people. So, again, in the absence of that, I suppose, government investment in sport, traditionally, sports organisations provided that framework and provided people with the opportunity to invest in sport and to develop it along. So, I mean, it has a, a load of different sort of um, strands to it. Um, probably not unlike any other country, I suppose, when you boil it all down. But that's, I, I suppose, the fact that they have, we have these indigenous games that aren't really, I mean, they are played around the world, but they're not played at a hugely high level outside of Ireland. So that, those in themselves, um, those two, those particularly football and hurling, um, I suppose, give a different, have a different sort of a sense uh, in terms of their connection to the country. And, and that sense of, uh, I suppose, because they were born out of a sense of trying to be distinctly different and to create a, a sense of self-identity, they have a different feel around them, perhaps, maybe than other sports that you might find more globally sports, I suppose, that you'd find around the world. Well, this is what it feels like. I'm glad you brought up the GAA and the formation of Gaelic football, because, you know, in the late 19th century, there's there's this rush to organize sports, to codify sports and whatnot. But Gaelic football, the GAA very distinctly made it almost a nationalistic game. Like, for example, you play it on the hurling pitch, you know, which is the Irish game. And, and that almost made it so that this game had to be nationalistic. It was almost like an island unto itself, as opposed to something like American football or Canadian football, which could be, it, you could cross over you, you, with, with those rules. So it almost feels to me like the GAA did it on purpose to be a nationalistic sport. Well, there's no, I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, when you think of, again, you know, you mentioned it there, I mean, the, the context of the time, as well as an awful lot of codification of sport going on, um, particularly in the British Isles, particularly in Britain, and also amateurism as well as it was becoming a thing. You know, the idea of a Corinthian approach to sport, public school sort of uh, service type of idea coming from Britain, which didn't, it caught on in Ireland, but not quite the same way. But anyway, that's another story. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the GAA and the creation of Gaelic football, you're quite right. Like hurling was a game that's reputed to have existed for thousands of years and it was codified and it was it was it was turned into the the beginning of the evolution of the game we know now Gaelic football was pretty much a creation there was always forms of of football played in Ireland but when it came to actually creating a game absolutely the idea was that yes we wanted to have the rough and tumble element that traditional games of football in Ireland would have had but it's not rugby and it's not soccer there's no offside rule there's nothing like that they can handle the ball. It's not even Aussie rules. It's not even Aussie rules. I mean, there is, and you know, there is an on, an ongoing sort of investigation into the connection between the two because mm. the rules of Gaelic football 
are quite similar to Australian rules to the point that there's been an international series between Ireland and Australia now for the last I mean, you could, I mean the first one was in I think it was an exhibition in 1967 it's got series in the mid 80s and there it hasn't been played for a few years now excuse me it hasn't been played for a few years now but it's been kind of there so there's that kind of symbiosis between the two games and you'd actually there would be an argument in Gaelic football now that the game is becoming too much like Aussie rules in terms of the rule changes and so on. But anyway, that wow. again, another Very story. interesting. But the interesting thing about the GAA being formed in 1884, very important to, to, to keep in mind that it was part of a general cultural and literary revival that was going on at the time. I mean, we're talking now about Yeats and Singh and Lady Gregory and the Abbey Theatre and all these things. And I go back again to this idea of giving Ireland a sense of its own worth that it was, again, not even 40 years since the famine. That country, a country that was, you know, roughly 8 million people in 1840-odd is now 4 million. You know, between emigration and death from starvation and absolute, absolute desolation of the countryside, the mor- morale is very low. The idea of having a national sense of itself is gone. The notion, yes, there are limited attempts at rebellion against the British Empire, but by and large, people are just trying to survive. So this idea, the GAA feeds into this idea of giving the people a sense of themselves again by reviving hurling and creating Gaelic football, but creating it as distinct from the games of rugby, cricket and soccer, which were very popular or were becoming very popular in Ireland at the time, to the point that the GAA had a rule up till relatively recently that, you know, you, if, you played, if you played Gaelic games, you could not play soccer or rugby. Huh? Uh, you, it was not allowed. Okay, so when I say relatively recently, I think it was 1971. I think we're 50 years since the ban, it was called. The ban was revoked. And again, it was a whole idea of, at the time in 1884, and I can't quite remember off the top of my head what year the ban was actually put into place. But the idea in the late 19th, early 20th century was, we need to ring fence these sports and their identity. And we need people to be completely committed to the idea of these sports. Now, it obviously took on a more political tone as the years went on uh, and independence was achieved and the Republic of Ireland and Ireland was created and the idea of a ban then on people playing soccer and rugby, it became a bit of a, a, a bit archaic and a bit, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't serving the purpose that it initially was created for. But certainly in the initial creation of Gaelic football, no doubt about it, it was created as an expression of exporting cultural independence. And that feeds into nationalism all, all in, in its own way then. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to keep people away from, say, basketball beginning in the 80s or 90s. <laughs> that would be pretty tough to do. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, I, I see there's a lot of politics tied, tied, tied up with this. So, I mean, you know, for example, soccer would have been referred to in Ireland as the garrison game because soccer would have been brought over by British soldiers mm-hmm. and they would, have been, they would have been very strong in the towns and urban areas where garrisons were. Mm-hmm. So you would have had, I mean, it would have been a traditional sort of a generational thing, then suddenly you had soccer families and you had rugby families. And it's still kind of, I mean, it's breaking down now, but you still would have a relative, there would be a degree of suspicion from the soccer crowd towards the GA crowd and a suspicion uh, from both the soccer and the GA crowd towards the rugby crowd. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of, it's still there under the surface and it doesn't take an awful lot for it to come out. But yeah. at least at least now I think it comes out in a bit more, um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not going to, Spill blood over it, let's put it that way. Yeah. 
I hear you. Okay, well, ostensibly the program is about the greatest of all time, and I wanted to talk to you about Teddy McCarthy momentarily, but you brought up another uh, footballer uh, prior to doing the show, uh, Jimmy Barry Murphy. What can mm -hmm. you tell me about him? Oh, well, blessed be his holy name. <laughs> That's what I can tell you about him, and okay. I should just leave it at that. That's okay. all I need to say. <laughs> no, seriously, I can, I'll let you leave it at that uh, because I wanted to ask you this. Because of your reaction before the show, am I to take it that this question of the greatest all-time footballer in Ireland is unsettled? Well, I think when we were chatting, we were talking in the context of a dual player, a player who plays right. football in Ireland, okay? So in that case, you mentioned Teddy there. Teddy McCarthy, famous for winning All-Ireland medals in hurling and football in the one season, which has... He's the only player in the history of the game ever to have done it. He had actually a teammate, Dennis Walsh, on that squad with him on hurling and football, but Dennis didn't make quite make the cut for the football. He was he was number twenty three, but at that time in nineteen ninety, he only gave medals to the first twenty one. So Dennis didn't wow. get his medal, which is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. He won an All Ireland hurling medal like two weeks before the football final, three weeks before, and he. Didn't he was sitting on the bench. He was with the, he was with the team. Right. He didn't get a medal for the football. But so in, in that context, I mean, Teddy stands out like as the sort obviously the most decorated dual, well, not the most decorated dual player, but the most distinctively decorated dual player for having achieved that. If we're talking about the greatest football player of all time. Well, now that's a whole other, that's all a whole other kettle of guacamole right there. Like I mean, we, I mean, we're living right now in Ireland. We're living through an unprecedented era of dominance in Gaelic football, and that would be Dublin. And on that team alone, there is probably two or three players now who you would, who are already, while they're playing, are in the argument for possibly being the greatest players of all time. Mm. And we yeah. thought we'd already seen them, but we're, we're in the middle of it. Would you mention Jimmy Barry Murphy? I, I, I'm only kidding about Jimmy. Like, Jimmy, see, for my age group, you see, <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up on the legend that is Jimmy Barry Murphy. Jimmy Barry Murphy won an All-Ireland football medal as a teenager in 1973. Skinhead crew cut teenager uh, just this beautiful football player he played he played soccer he's a beautiful soccer player as well so that was his first kind of emergence onto the scene but he was he became more known as a hurler he won three all-ireland medals in a row in the mid 70s and won two more in 1984 and 1986 just before the end of his career so in that sense for for cork people jbm we'd call him i suppose for short he, he's he's like a I don't know what the equivalent is. He's just a, he's a, he's both he's both a cult hero, but also he's got the medals to show for it. You know, kind of way. So he's got it all, and he was also an absolute gentleman. He wasn't a he wasn't a dirty player. He was a, he was a forward. He was a, just such a he used to glide across the ground like if, if he was running across a puddle, there would not a splash of water occur when Jimmy was running across a, a puddle. It would just he just glide across. Well, there's I think that in these arguments about goatdom. I mean, unless you're talking about somebody like Don Bradman in cricket, sure. there's always going to be this subjective element. Right? You can never convince me that LeBron James is the greatest because I saw Michael Jordan. You know, I saw Magic and Larry Bird, you know, and they were, you know, pardon the pun, Magic. LeBron is scientific, but, you know, he's yeah. not Magic. So there's always that element in there. But I wanted to start with Teddy McCarthy on this episode. I wanted to feature him on this episode because, of course, you know, like you said, he won the two titles in one season. This is unprecedented. 
there is a list, however, of, of athletes who have won titles in both sports. However, it's not been done in the 20th century, the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And, and my question is, I'm wondering how is the effect because we see it all over the world in sports. How is the effect of the 12 month season in Irish sport? I mean, is that happening where you must focus on one sport to the exclusion of the rest? At elite level for, I would say, probably the last decade now, it's become completely impossible to do both. Mm-hmm. You're quite right. The 12 month round. Now, I know, you know, keep in mind, we are talking about amateur sport here, but still, the professionalization of amateur sport and amateur prep, uh, or prep for amateur sport, I should say, it, it, it leaves no space. So you like take Teddy, for example, now, in 1990, right? So Teddy was playing for Cork football and Cork hurling. Uh, he could pick and choose which training session he went to, okay? So he, he, see, he, he, he largely went with the hurlers. Got to ask Teddy this himself. But I'm going, to, I'm going to take an educated guess that the, like the physical training for football will be a lot more arduous than hurling. Hurling is all a real touch game. And if you've got decent fitness, it's all about your touch then. So he would have, he would have kind of gravitated towards the hurlers more. However, he also had an, an ankle injury during that summer. So, for example, he missed, again, in hurling and football, you have to win your provincial title to go forward to the All-Ireland semi-final and then to the final. So Cork had monster finals in football and hurling. Teddy missed both of them with this ankle injury that he picked up. So he missed a bit of game time there. He came on in the All-Ireland hurling semi-final. Didn't play particularly well. Got chewed out of it a little bit for not playing well. There was question marks over whether he'd start uh, either final. But he had that sort of charisma and that kind of personality. That, and he had aggression. And he was an amazing fielder of the ball as well. Incredible. And I mean, we're not talking about catching the ball and hurling. I mean, we're talking about no helmet. No shin pads. Hurley's flying in the air. And I, can, I saw him many, many times at matches leaping and landing on the top of the shoulders of the guy in front of him and catching the ball out of the sky and coming down. It had a huge lifting effect. And this was a time when both hurling and football, particularly hurling, was a very instinctive game. You got the ball and you let it go. You just let it go. This is all getting to the point that I'm going to make. You forward on 30 years. The game has changed. The very same as every other. So many sports now. It's become more possession-based. Football and hurling have become more possession-based. It's become more scientific. And defenses are a lot more complex. There you have it now. Yeah. And so now, whereas hurling and football were once very much position-based, you had 15 players in a grid position, in, in a 15-grid, you know, six backs, two midfielders, six forwards. Everyone had their markers. There might be little tactical de- deviations here and there, but that was essentially it. You won your battle, and you got the ball away from yourself. And, you know, there was a bit of possession play in it, but by and large, it, the game rolled along like in that way. Now, Gaelic football, for example, you'll have 15 men back and they'll, you know, they'll defend on mass and they'll attack on mass. That requires huge physical strength, stamina, mental agility, multifaceted skill base. I mean, it's not just enough to be a, a back, a defender and a good defender. You need to be able to kick the ball over a bar if you get the ball 20 yards from the other goal. So all of these things add into the reality that at the very highest level, the dual player is really an, an extinct uh, creature now. And also the fact that there has been a push to create more games in both hurling and football at elite level to justify the amount of training that amateur players are, 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 are undertaking. So again, again, back in Teddy's time, it was straight knockout. 
played your first game of the hurling championship and got knocked out, you were gone. You lost it, you were gone. You could go play football all summer. Whereas now, <laughs> there's all sorts of factors. Now, okay, we're living in a COVID world at the moment, so they've gone back to knockout for football just for this year alone. But in normal times, the knockout has been gone now for over for near, uh, 20 years now. So it's different. It's just completely different. And it's beginning to percolate down now to the club level, the next level, the senior club level, which is the level below your inter-county elites. And it's even beginning to percolate down even lower, mainly because it fixed your clashes and just the general sort of um, too much damn training, really. Right. right. Yeah, the McCarthy situation sounds a lot like the Bo Jackson situation. Yes. Where he would do that. He would blow off football practice, but then on Sunday he'd go play the games because he was also with the Royals at the same time. But yeah. baseball in those days ended at about the same time that football was beginning, now yeah. you have longer playoffs, you have more postseason, more mini camps in football, in American football, for example. So, yeah. And, yeah. It's and, and it's like you say, too, it's also trickling down. You can still do, say, for example, track and field and American football in college. But even mm. that's going away now, too. Even that, they're expecting you to play football all year. No, that's it. And I mean, don't know more than Bo Jackson and no more than track and field. In Gaelic games, at, at, you know, and it, make, it kind of still applies that the physical work that you would do, if you're playing football and hurling, the physical work you do in Gaelic football will more than suffice for hurling. <laughs> Even though hurling has become a hell of a lot more physical, yeah. really has become a lot more physical in the last bunch of years, yeah. but it will, do, it will do you. It's In hurling, it's touch. It's, you've got to be playing it all the time or else you're just your, your millisecond reactions and, and so on will, will just... They'll just uh, get, get a little bit rusty. And, and that split second makes all the difference in hurling. So, yeah, that's, 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 that's another reason, you know, why it's, it's, sort of just, it's sort of going by the wayside a little bit, the whole dual thing. But there's been some great dual players down the years. I mean, I was only thinking about it before I came on. I was just thinking about some of the guys. I'll tell you what, it's a great... Do you know the old saying about if you want something done, give it to a busy guy? That says it all about dual players in Gaelic games. I mean, yeah. some of the guys who have, had, who have been great dual players... Have had so much going on in their lives, it's insane. Like Teddy, Mac actually Teddy McCarthy, for example, in the in the in the fortnight or three weeks or whatever it was, in between the All Ireland hurling final in 1990 and the All Ireland football final of 1990, uh, his wife had their baby son. Right, so <laughs> there's a guy who was busy for a month. Nice. You had like, you know, Jack Lynch, another great Cork jewel player in the 40s and the 30s, won All Ireland medals in both hurling and football. He went on to become the Taoiseach of the country, the Prime Minister of the country. Um, my favourite one of all is Frank Burke from Dublin. Frank Burke, um, way, way back in the, in the early 20th century, he was involved in the Easter Rising. He went to school. If people have any, have any kind of sort of awareness of Irish history, the Easter Rising, Patrick Pierce was the, was the main leader of the 1916 Rising. Pierce was a teacher in a school in Dublin. And Burke would have gone to school in Pierce's school. He was inducted into the Irish Volunteers by Pierce. Pierce gave him his rifle. And when it came to the Easter Rising of 1916, which was kind of a week long around Easter uh, in the middle of Dublin, um, Frank Burke went to the GPO in the middle of Dublin and he was there for the whole week. He was taken to pretty, was, they lost, obviously they lost, uh, they were defeated. He went, he was taken to prison in Britain. He was let out after a year. He came back and he won an All-Ireland Hurling Medal with Dublin that year. Three years later, three years later, he was playing football for Dublin on Bloody Sunday in 1920 when 14 people were killed in Crow Park. 
uh, by by Bruce uh, policeman who went there after after 14 uh, British spies had been killed that morning and 14 people were killed in Crow Park and Frank Burke was playing that day. He was actually marked by a Tipperary player who was killed on the day, uh, Michael Hogan, after whom the Hogan stand is named in Crow Park. But Burke went on then to win more All-Ireland medals in football with Dublin and he is, he is considered, even though obviously we're 100 years away now, but he's... I, I think his memory has been sort of regathered in the last few years, and he he will be considered among the greatest forwards of all time. But what an extraordinary life around playing hurling and football! And again, you know, to the likes of him, uh, I've met his son. His son is still alive, fantastic man, and like his father wouldn't have spoken much about his revolutionary life. But I don't think there's any doubt that a lot of guys who would have played in that time would have seen their games as an extension of their their nationalist feeling. That is not the case for the vast majority of people anymore. And to be fair, 100 years ago, it wouldn't have been the case for a lot of people either. People would have just gone to watch games. But for a cohort of guys playing their games, you know, going back to your original question about, about the impact of sport in, in Ireland, back at that time, playing the games would have been very much a statement of who you were. For some right. of them. Not right. all of them, but for some of them. Right. It really seems like you're really hammering home my feeling that it's almost impossible to separate the history of these sports from the history of Ireland itself. Looking at hurling last time, so many times the English government saw hurling as the symbol of barbarian Irish and that this must be repressed and that no, 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 British people don't play this game. It's almost like the sports are a symbol of Ireland themselves and that in the case of cultural repression, this is yeah. what gets repressed is the sport. Of course. And but it all it, it feeds into that that again, that socio cultural thing you're mm. talking about. You know, mm. I mean it would be okay if they were playing cricket and rugby and soccer and absolutely nothing wrong with it. I'm a huge fan of all of three of them. Mm-hmm. But just they're you know, again, how you can use sport and how you use language and how you use uh, culture to impose itself mm. upon a group of people as a way of, uh, I suppose, rooting your life, your sense of identity onto another people. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. I mean, hurling, I mean, you talk about hurling there as a sense of identity. Like, you know, I mean, the Irish volunteers, when they didn't have guns, they drilled with hurlies. I mean, you know, and that's, again, mm-hmm. I'm always conscious of making this point. This is not a reflection upon the GA. The GAA always endeavoured to be an apolitical organisation. They tried to stay out of all this stuff. Of course, it's very difficult. So if guys are using hurlies to, you know, drill, there's not a whole lot the GA can do to stop them. They're not going to, the GA aren't going to confiscate their own hurlies. So, you know, but this is, again, you're quite right. I mean, this is the, this is the vision that, that the British authorities at that period of Irish history would have seen. And you would see it in Northern Ireland as well, unfortunately, during the Troubles and even before that. I, I mean, I can remember a friend of mine at home here that I was in school with. He went to he went to college in Queens in Belfast. He would have gone in the early nineties, and he was a, he was a, he would have played hurling, and he he took his hurley with him, and he didn't he only realised after a while that it wasn't a good idea to walk around, you know, the environs, not the college, but the around Belfast right. with a hurley. I mean, that immediately identifies you as a certain thing that we would never down here would have go play hurling I'm playing because I enjoy the game I'm not making some statement about my my political views I'm just playing a game whereas in the north it was it was a political statement it continues to some degree to be that but luckily that is evolving that is evolving and the GA is evolving as well you see it more I see it personally more 
as more of a community-based organization now and the sense of, yes, politics and all that is, is embedded in it. You're absolutely right. You cannot, you cannot tell the history of Ireland without telling the history of hurling and football. But there is a point where hurling and football needs to be uh, an opportunity to bring more people in. It needs to be a community endeavor that draws people together rather than pulling them apart or being distinct of itself from the rest of the community. And we're at that point now, I think, in Ireland where the GAA is turning towards that sense of itself, that it is it's more. I'm not saying it wasn't outward looking before, but it's certainly more actively outward looking now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is a very good thing. All right, just one final question. How is the future of these sports, seeing as how they're amateur? I'm sure that a guy like McCarthy will never have to buy a, a drink in a pub again. But how do, I mean, how do amateur athletes survive given the 24-7, 365 spin of these sports? I mean, how do they make it? With great difficulty. <laughs> like the GAA is a very unique organization in that sense. I mean, relatively speaking, proportionally speaking, obviously it's a tiny organization. I often, when guys get excited about hurling football, I often kind of remind them, look, there are two fringe sports in a, on a small island on the edge of Western Europe. You know, we don't need to get too excited about it. There's 10 billion people in China that doesn't even know this is happening or whatever. A billion people <laughs> in China don't even know this is going on. So, you know, relax, enjoy your day out, buy an ice cream, you know. But um, I suppose the GA, proportionally speaking, though, there are not many sporting organizations within a country. And the GA is the number one preeminent biggest sporting organization in Ireland, 32 county, the entire island that are amateur that are not, do not have any professional aspect to it at all. How, how are they managing? How are they surviving? Well, in the last, particularly in the last 20 years, there has been a kind of a, a, a move to sort of, well, what does amateur mean in the 21st century? Mm. What, how can we sort of make this practical? So, for example, at the highest level, again, at the elite level, players are now allowed to um, do commercial deals, do marketing deals, you know, mm-hmm. sell their image do ads, get money for that, drive sponsored cars, um, do media spots, and they're paid for the media spot, right? That has had a couple of effects. I mean, one thing I I suppose in a sense is that from a media point of view, it's made them more distant than what they were. Previous to this, guys, you know, lived among us in the community, and if you wanted to call a guy, you call him and he was there, whereas now there's buffers. There's there's agents, and there's PR companies, and there's handlers, and there's there's all all the trappings of professional sports. The other, I suppose, major development was the creation of a players' union, uh, the Gaelic Players Association, which is again for the intercounty elites. I'll talk about the club guys in a minute, but they, they, at the intercounty elites, so they're looking after them. They're making sure that they're getting mileage expenses, that the gear they're, they're getting their gear, they're getting meals after training, that they're not losing out on anything. Mm-hmm. They would have, they would also run, um, you know, self-development courses. They would help guys in terms of scholarships for college. They would help them in terms of managing their life, their mental health. All these things are there now. So there is a support network. And you would like, I mean, you, you, you talk you talk to so many guys who've retired and they say, geez, you know, I feel like I'm out of the bubble now, you know. And these are amateur guys. They're going, there's not meant to be any bloody bubble. But there is a bubble. You know, there is a bubble. And they are kept back and they are protected to some degree. Not to the degree of your you know, millionaire sports person, I would, I would suggest. But it's the same idea. 
I, in terms of the club guys, there will be a sense that because of all of this, that there has a, a kind of a disconnect occurred because the inter-county game, the top end, is so vital to the GAA in terms of revenue and TV money and commercial. Its commercial value is immense. Also, like in, compared to American sports and com- compared to British sports, I mean, we look at the Premier League at soccer, like gate revenue, people coming through the turnstiles is not important anymore, right? It's not important to professional sports. I don't know. Oh, it's certainly not in soccer. It's not. Pre- Premier League could play in front of empty stadia every week. It wouldn't make a damn of a difference to them as long as they get their TV money. GA, totally different. 49% of annual revenue comes through the gates. So they need... They need games and they need Intercounty to be a big fish. So there is a disconnect between that and the club guy. Club guy, and I'm talking with the club guy, I'm talking with the guy who goes down to his local field and there's 12 people watching the game. And the guy who plays for Cork, for example, in an All-Ireland final will, a couple of weeks later, be on that same field with that guy playing in front of 12 people. But there's a, there a gap. There's a gap. And that is something that the GA wrestles with all the time. But the idea, I mean, it's, 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 been a, it's been a conversation for probably 40, 50 years now in the GA. Professionalism. Will it, is going to go professional? Does the creation of players' union dictate there's going to be a professional game? Again, I go back to, it's two fringe sports on the edge of Western Europe. <laughs> like the TV deal at the moment, the TV deal for football and hurling is just over 55 million quid over, I think it's five years. Right? Wow. I mean, that's, like, wow. it's, it's not a lot, really. Wow. You know, yeah. That's it's not, not a lot. lot. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you how do you create how do you create a professional league based on two indigenous sports that really, with the best will in the world, I mean, pockets of people in America know about it, pockets of people in the UK know about it, but they're largely Irish communities or people who have connections with the Irish community who know about it. And they go, oh, this game is great. I mean, you go to New York. I mean, New York have team like, like there was a New York senior team is very very close to being entirely New Yorkers now, but like. What does that mean? Like, you know, it's not it's not enough of a base to create a profession. In my opinion, they would have to completely tear up the entire thing. It would have to go a little bit like American football. There would have to be franchises. There would have to be certainly there would have to be salary caps and there would have to be all sorts of mechanisms whereby the competition would be kept even. And you would be absolutely well, certainly for someone like me, you would be tearing the roots out of the GAA in terms of what we know it to be. It would be completely disconnected from what we know it to be. And I think it would be a, a, a really damaging thing to happen to, to, to the organization because it does go beyond sport. It's, it's, a, really, it's a really community thing. It, that wouldn't exist anymore if it went professional. We'll get back to the Truly the Goats podcast in just a moment. But first, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl One, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of Myth Podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com 
slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it will be interesting post-COVID now. I mean, we're we're here right now. Only in Ireland is it now possible for they're allowing 200 people into grounds with a 5,000 capacity or more. There is a so there has been a very very long time without people in the grounds, which has crippled the GA financially. By the way, it's really really left a serious mark on them. But it will be interesting to see what the reaction will be when the gates are open again and people can go to games. Will it have a positive impact, an upsurge? in terms of attendance, at least for the first year or maybe two years. Because as you say, um, you know, these have, all sports have become um, TV consumer sports. You know, they've become yeah. streaming, they've become a streaming option. Um, and it's, it's something that people are becoming more and more used to consuming either on their phone, on their laptop, or on their television, rather than... I mean, I was watching, um, I was watching a, a game of the Euros, the Euro 2020 uh, tournament here uh, the other day. I think it was England versus Croatia. And... There was a piece of action going on, and the camera caught the crowd behind the goal, and like they were all filming it on their camera. Like they were watching the game, but they were filming it on their camera when the game was down there on their phones. I was like, this is wow. completely batshit crazy. I mean, you're at the game, you know. Snap your your memory. There's your memory. You know what are you doing? I don't understand it. But then again, you know what? It's not for me. That's I'm I'm not the target audience there. So and I understand that too. But it just still. It just gives you an indication of how conditioned people have become now to consuming their sport and consuming everything through media rather than actually consuming it directly as, a, as an actual experience in a, in a sports stadium. Okay, Michael Foley, thanks very much for talking to us today. No problem, anytime. This has been a special edition of Truth the Goats. To find us online, visit truththegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. For more like-minded shows, be sure to check out SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Thanks to our guest for Truly the Goats episode 13, Michael Foley. Michael's books may be found at The O'Brien Press. That's O'Brien.ie. Now, I'd highly recommend checking out his excellent limited series podcast, The Bloody Field, based on his book of the same name. It's available at the Gaelic Athletic Association official website, gaa.ie. The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street, greatest remix of all time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying... Happy early 100th birthday, Republic of Ireland, and reminding you to keep on keeping that
Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment. You know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website. But we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sports. HistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.